0: Alright, once again, we have a lot to cover today, what with all of these Homeric hymns, covering the rest of the Pantheon, and even, if we have time, going back to Hesiod and covering what of the Theogony we missed last time. Um, So, just to recap, at this point we've talked about the first generation of the gods. We talked about the Big Three, Zeus, God of Lightning, King of the Gods, Poseidon, God of the Ocean, Earthquakes, and, weirdly, Horses. Um, Hades, god of the underworld and the realm Hades that bears his name, as well as the dead who live there. We have Aphrodite, whose origins seem mysterious and who is the god of sex and love. We have Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, who basically keeps the fires going and is so boring that none of the myths talk about her. We have Demeter, the goddess of grain. Um, who also has this daughter Persephone, which we will talk about momentarily, and we have Hera, uh, the wife of Zeus, queen of the gods, and jealous, horrible character almost all of the time. Today I want to focus on the second generation of characters. I want to talk about the children of Zeus and Hera, as well as Zeus's many other children who get elevated up to the like high Olympian pantheon, Um, and I want to talk about the three myths that we looked at today. Um, So, the obvious place to start is actually with the Homeric hymn to Demeter, since we've already talked about Demeter. Um, And this is like the defining myth um, for, honestly, both Demeter and Persephone, as well as arguably Hades as well. Um, especially because all of these characters don't tend to factor into most of the other myths. like we'll see Hades come up again anytime somebody visits the underworld, um, but usually just as a minor character, like as a passing participant. I mean, honestly, in this myth, even Hades doesn't have a whole like lot to do here besides being the initial person who like carries Persephone off. Um, but more than that, I want to focus on like what this myth actually is. In context, what is the relevance of this myth? Uh, Because it ties very deeply into the way that the Greeks view religion, and one of the greatest, like examples of Greek religiousness, their one of their most famous rituals is very bound up with this myth. Um, So the myth that I'm talking about, obviously, is the Homeric hymn to Demeter. Um, If you haven't already, please read this because it's kind of a hugely important one, and we will be referring to it often. The basic outline you're probably familiar with. This is one that gets a lot of truck. Um, So Hades apparently is unmarried, but he is lonely, and he is basically not allowed to leave his realm, so he kind of has to find a wife and bring her down to join him in the underworld. But, surprise, none of the goddesses want to spend all their time being married to the dour, grim, like... Just and in completely unemotional Hades, as well as living in the realm of the dead, which is just dark and gloomy and lousy and a really terrible place to be. Um, so nobody's volunteering. Like, as much as Hades is super powerful and super wealthy, nobody cares. They don't want to marry Hades for fairly obvious reasons. So apparently, he has a conversation with Zeus behind Demeter's back. We only learn about this like midway through the text. Zeus gives him the go-ahead, and Hades lures Persephone, uh, Demeter's daughter, who is, you know, the goddess of flowers and very much in love with, like, growing things. He lures her into a veil of flowers, and then he rises up out of the earth, like, carries her onto his dark chariot, and returns to the realm of Hades in the bowels of Tartarus. Um... But we only get this through Demeter's perspective in this hymn, and I think that's kind of interesting and important. Um, On the one hand, it kind of makes for a better story, because you honestly don't know where Persephone is for a decent chunk of the myth. Um, Like, you get the line at the beginning that, you know, Gaia grew a... The flowers as a trap for uh, for Persephone by the will of Zeus um, at the very beginning on page five twenty four, um, so that inevitability is still present. Like there's no tension in not knowing where Persephone is, but we do specifically follow Demeter as she both learns about this and grieves over the situation. Um, so you'll notice like how Demeter deals with this. First, she doesn't know where Persephone is. She's upset. She's you know, like trying to find her. Um, But it's not until Hecate comes to Demeter out of sympathy and explains that Zeus is responsible for the kidnap of Persephone and that she is now married to Hades. This is the agreement that they have struck. And I want to stress, like, different versions of the story will will emphasize different components about it, but I think it's really important that Homer always, throughout this text, lays the blame on Zeus, not Hades. Like, Demeter's beef here is not with Hades, it is with Zeus, um, Hades carrying Persephone off violently as it may be is not the product of like Hades just rising up against the gods and doing whatever he wants. He does it with Zeus's permission. This is part of the divine order. Um, and as a result, Demeter isn't leaving you know Olympus to get back at Hades. She's doing it to get back at Zeus. Um, this absolutely emphasizes Zeus's like, the preeminent power among the gods. This absolutely like defines the connection between Zeus and fate. Um, Zeus is the arbiter and the sort of like guarantor of fate here. Um, He is its representative. He makes sure that what is fated comes to pass and likewise you can't argue with Zeus any more than you could argue with fate. Um, Demeter knows that there's no point trying to persuade Zeus. Um, She's got to come up with some ulterior method. Now, the interesting thing is she basically wanders off and disguises herself as a human, and we get this whole sort of subplot with the character of Demophon the young boy who she sort of adopts um, as his nurse uh, from his proper parents. Um, and it's interesting to see that like Demeter, like Gaia, like Hera, like many of these sort of maternal archetypes that the Greeks dabble in, um... Her solution to, I have lost my daughter, is I will, you know, basically, like, adopt this son. I will replace her. Um, Thus, like, you know, stressing that maternal aspect. The fact that her relationship is very much defined by her motherhood. Um, But also notice, like, how this plays out. Um, how she's, like, trying to train up the kid, how she is going to put him over the fire and, like, burn the mortality out of him, and the parents, of course, freak out, and they're like, oh, no, what are you doing? Get out of here! You're the worst! And Demeter then reveals that, you know, she is, in fact, a goddess, and she would have, in fact, really, like, basically turned their son into a god, um, but they were, they stopped her, and therefore she, she isn't going to do that, and she's now upset about it, and she's gonna leave. Um, now, this kind of works as a weird diversion in the sort of plot between Demeter and Hades. Um, so it's kind of up to you exactly how you want to read this, like how we're supposed to understand what the Greeks thought about this passage, why it's so intrinsic to the text. Um, but one of the things I do want to stress is that um, like, uh, like Aphrodite with both Kithara and Cyprus, um, Demeter is associated with a very specific place. Um, in fact, most of the gods have this relationship to specific places. We see it again in Apollo. Um, we see it with Dionysus, though we'll get into that later on in the class. Um, even Zeus um, was supposedly born you know, to Rhea, hidden from Kronos, but hidden on the island of Crete. Um, and the story goes that like, when Zeus cried to prevent Cronus from hearing the cries like Rhea and Gaius like set up sentries outside of the cave where Zeus was being raised and they would bang on their shields um, whenever the kid cried to drown out the sound of his crying Um, and to this day there is a ritual well maybe not to this day but to the day of the Greeks when Hesiod is telling the story and during the classical period as well Every year during a certain festival around the new year, a bunch of Greek soldiers and stuff will meet at the the cave where this supposedly happened and bang their shields. Like, this is a ritual. This is how you reenact the myth. Um, Likewise, with the myth of Demeter, you'll notice that the town where she hangs out, where she is raising Demophoon and sort of like engaging with the people in disguise, this is the town of Eleusis. Um, And when she is kicked out... She says at the bottom of page five twenty nine. Now there is no way for him to avoid death and human fate. Yet his imperishable honor will survive forever because he climbed up on my lap and slept in in my arms. And then each season, as the years revolve around him, the children of the Eleusinians will wage war and dire battle among each other forevermore, for I am always revered, Demeter, who provides immortals and mortals with benefits and joy. Um. Now, the suggestion here is that this is a tradition that is starting up. Um, The Eleusinians will perform ritual battles or mock battles to celebrate Demeter's presence among them for a certain point of time. This will enrich their culture. It will make them, you know, fat and happy. Uh, They will get more grain if they properly revered Demeter in this way. But more than this is a ritual that springs up afterwards. Um, so if you continue through the story after she's hanging around in Eleusis, finally she comes up with this plan that she's just going to, like, strike the world barren for a whole year. There's going to be a famine for an entire year, nothing grows because Demeter is so upset, um, and she's basically holding the entire world hostage until she gets her daughter back. Um, now there's a little bit of talk between Demeter and Zeus, um, Hermes goes back and forth between the two of them to try and, like, sort things out, and finally Hermes is dispatched to get Persephone and bring her back to Demeter. But, of course, the problem is that Persephone has eaten pomegranate seeds, and as, uh, while she was in the underworld, she has eaten the food of the dead. And as a result, she has to come back to the underworld for, depending on your... Uh, depending on who tells the story, three months or six or nine or whatever the case may be, every year. Um, And during that time, Demeter is in mourning and the earth will not grow plants. Um, and this is the Greeks' explanation for why there are seasons. Um, the, the whole seasonal cycle from winter to spring to summer to fall is explained because during the winter, Persephone is in Hades and Demeter is in mourning, and nothing is going to grow. Um, but just understanding this myth in context of, like, what does it say about the world is just going, is not going deep enough for our purposes. There's more to it than that. Um so first off like you know it's a good story just to start like this is one of those myths that as CS Lewis said rise up from the others like elms um it stands on its own as a good story um it also does the work of explanation like specifically explaining this particular phenomena of why do, do we have winter spring summer fall um why do the seasons change well it's because demeter is upset Um, But more than that, it is also deeply ingrained with the religious practices. Um, So after, you know, probably considerably after, uh, like, Hesiod told this story and the myth was originally founded, um, but still really ancient, like hundreds of years BCE, um, Eleusis celebrates what are known as the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, and there are a bunch of mystery religions hanging around in ancient Greece, and they only get more and more popular as time goes on, to the point that they actually start to, like, unseat the myths that sprang, that, like, you know, spawned them in the first place. Um, and the one at Eleusis is perhaps the best documented, and therefore the one that we know the most about from an archaeological or an anthropological perspective. Um, and the, what, what the mystery religions and many of the sort of mythic like religions tended to do is reenact the myths as they are told to us. So in the case of Eleusis, um, like there was this whole elaborate ceremony with this whole elaborate system of initiation involved in the process of performing this myth year after year after year. Um, And it was every year they performed this ritual, this myth. So if you were a newly initiated or if you were a newly initiated acolyte into the Eleusinian mysteries, um, you could expect like in the week before the actual celebration was to take place um, that you would go to the temple at Eleusis and you would get like ritually prepared. Um, You would be washed, You would be sanctified, people would, like, dance around you, people would probably get you exposed to a number of, like, hallucinogenic or psychotropic substances, um, you would get up, get, like, schooled in exactly what to expect, you would be provided with ceremonial robes, um, and then finally the night would arrive and you would meet at the temple and you would get, like, drugged, unconscious, um, and they would take you out blindfolded into the middle of the wilderness. Um, In the pitch black dark, with all of the lights extinguished, except your guide would have a torch with him. And you would follow your guide, or not as some stories tend to tell it, and you would either blindly, or with their help, proceed through the darkness trying to find your way back to the temple at Eleusis. And along the way, people would be hiding in the woods. Um, They would be like dressed in strange costumes, or masked, Or shrouded from view and they would make noise and they would like jump out at you and they would try and scare the living crap out of you Um, and quite successfully because you were pretty high at this point in time as well as very disoriented and have no idea where you're going But eventually, after wandering through the dark wilderness for a while, uh, your guide or you would make your way back to the Temple of Eleusis where a bunch of lanterns had been lit, like a bunch of torches were blazing. It was the brightest place to be seen for miles around. Um, And when all of the initiates had finally made it back to the temple, um, the high priest at Eleusis would hold up the symbol, Of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which the best guess that anyone has at this point is that it was an ear of corn, like a seasonably or an unseasonably early ripe ear of corn, Um, because this was usually performed in the spring or the very early summer, um, before really like the grain had had a chance to grow. Um, The priest would hold this up, whatever the symbol was, and invite everyone to reflect on it. And then they would all go their separate ways. Um, and then as an initiate, you were welcome to come back to the Mysteries of Eleusis in any future year and participate as either a spectator or as one of the assholes sitting out in the wilderness trying to scare poor initiates. Um, and it was important like that every step of the way had a certain amount of initiatedness to it. Um, Like you were before you were initiated an acolyte and then after your initiation um, you would be like initiated into the mysteries and you would know more information about them but then if you came back another time then you would be like a greater scholar of the mysteries like there was this whole large organization around it but importantly it also had um, religious significance. Like, by participating in the mysteries, by becoming an initiate, but going through the whole process, you were guaranteed a better spot in the underworld. Um, Since this is a ritual and celebration of Demeter, you would um, be more adored and endeared to Persephone, the queen of the underworld, which means that she would give you special treatment when you came down to Hades. but what I want to stress about this whole process—the fact that there's this myth and then there's this ritual—is that the ritual is basically a reenactment of the myth. Um, like Demeter, the initiate wanders across the world, not knowing what, like, where the thing they're looking for—for for Demeter, Persephone, for you, the you know secret symbol and the Temple of Eleusis—where it actually is. Um, like Demeter, you wander hopeless, disoriented, afraid, and concerned. You re-experience that. Or, as some have alter- alternately interpreted it, you are more like Persephone, trying to wander back into the light, having been trapped in darkness and horror and the underworld. And keep in mind, like, the reason why there are different interpretations is because we don't know. Like, it's a mystery religion. The mystery was a rather critical component of it. Um, The trouble is, you know, a lot of people did write about the Eleusinian Mysteries, so we have a basic idea of how it proceeded, like what the actual events were, but what they signified is a little trickier to figure out. And it's also why we don't know what the secret symbol was, why we only guess that it was an ear of corn. Um... At any rate, though, the important thing is that you eventually make it to the Gathering of Light, the Eleusinian Temple, where the symbol is being held and order is restored. But this is more than just, you know, something we celebrate to remember. For the Greeks and for most ancient cultures, performing the myth is how you guaranteed that things were going to remain the same. Um, It's not a celebration of Demeter and Persephone, though it is that, but it's also a guarantee that the spring and summer will give way to fall, that you will have a good harvest, and that next year will be the same. Um, This is how you keep the world going, according to the ancient Greeks. By performing this ritual year after year after year, you ensure prosperity, um, continued growth cycles, And the world continually refreshing, giving you new crops, giving you new health and prosperity. Um, The world doesn't have a scientific basis. It has a basis in these rituals. Um, And it's not like, it doesn't come naturally to us to think in this way. Um, Or rather, it comes very naturally, and we've just, you know, do it so infrequently that, like, we've forgotten how it works. Um, But the real theory here is, you know, the myth is not something that you recite or that you just put on paper uh, to be read by future classes of mythology students as this, you know, scholarly subject that has no bearing on their lives. No, the myth exists as an initiation, as a way of bringing you into the process of the mystery. And by participating in the ritual, you are learning and performing the myth. And by repeating the myth, you repeat the value and the, the truth that the myth represents. The myth does not just explain the world in the sense of, you know, like, how where, where do seasons come from? Well, it's because of Demeter and Persephone. No, the myth makes the world. You, by participating in the ritual, by reciting and retelling the myth through your actions, remake the world according to the world that the myth describes. Um, Demeter is not the only one searching for Persephone. You search for Persephone. Or rather, Persephone is not the only one lost and alone. You too are lost and alone. The world that is made through Demeter and Persephone's behavior in this myth is also the world that you make through your behavior and participation in this myth. Um, It is not cut and dry. These are not just stories. These are things you live. These are things you do. Things that you make real. It depends on the culture in a sense. Um, And while this interpretation is just like one of many... Um, Like, there are certainly other scholars who disagree with this, and other priests who would argue otherwise, like when Plato shows up, he argues that that's not how it works at all. Um, Surprise, people disagree about the way religion works. Um, But overwhelmingly, we see repeated again and again and again in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, and ancient Babylon, and virtually all of these ancient societies that we're going to talk about in this class, um, myth and the stories of myth... Connect to rituals which have to be performed over and over and over again, not just as a commemoration of the myth, but as a reenactment of the myth. The myth is not something that happened a long time ago. The myth is something that happens every year, all the time, is happening now. Um, you do not relate to myth as something told to you. You relate to myth as something you do and connect to on a very basic participatory level. Um, And again, I realize that that's a lot to wrap your brain around, but there's a lot to it here. Um, It is not the way that we typically think of our stories. We do not relate to them as consumers, Um, The Greeks saw themselves as being individually endowed with priesthood in some ways. Um, The priests, of course, had preeminence. They were responsible for administering these myths. But like being pious, um, being religious, protecting yourself by supplicating the gods was not just a matter of sacrifices and gifts and behavior like according to what the gods say, but participating in these rituals to make sure that the world keeps spinning the way that you want it to. Um, That's also part of the process. But on another note, as far as how religion and myth tie together, I want to look at the Homeric Hymn to Apollo. Um, And I realize that that one's kind of weird and out there and fairly boring and very long, but there's a lot going on under the surface here. Um, And a lot that tells us about both the Greek's society and the Greek's religion and how the two work together. Um, And let me stress, because Apollo is one that we haven't talked about yet, and it's kind of the first and most important of the gods that we need to talk about today. Um, Apollo is complicated. Um, Like, he is simultaneously the most Greek of the gods. Like, He is frequently associated with Greece in a way that many of the other gods can be associated with other cultures and other societies. Um, But Apollo is like, maybe not uniquely Greek, he might have had origins in other cultural myths, but he is distinctly Greek. Um, The Greeks gradually sort of gravitate towards Apollo more and more as their society continues, and they associate Apollo with them more and more as their society continues. Apollo has a very strange importance, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, But first I want to talk about the actual Homeric Hymn here. And unlike most of the other Homeric Hymns, which are primarily featuring uh, the gods that they are dedicated to, this one starts with the birth of Apollo, or rather the sort of, like, prevented birth of Apollo. Um, So Leto, Apollo's mother... Is um, looking for a place to settle down and give birth to Apollo and Artemis. Um, and she's having trouble. No place will accept her. Um, in part because they know that Apollo is going to be like a big, powerful, scary god with violent tempers and subject to emotional fits. And as a result, like they're worried that wherever Apollo gets born is going to like wreck the place and, you know, no- nobody will ever be the same. Um, so, you know, Leto bounces around and keeps getting rejected by all these places that are trying to protect themselves. Um, the place where she actually lands is the tiny, crappy island of Delos, or Delos. And it is a shithole. Um, it is emphasized in the text that it is a shithole. Nothing grows there. It is rocky, seagirt Delos. Um... Nothing grows there. No, you can't raise animals on it because nothing grows on the island. Like, it is just this crappy island and there's nothing good about it. And that is actually why Leto wants to have Apollo there. Um, She has this conversation with the island, um, which, you know, a lot of these islands and rivers and places will also have personalities in Greek myth. Get used to that because we're going to see it over and over and over again. And also, again, in Telfusia in this myth. Um, but notice how she talks to this island on 236 to 237. Delos, if only you were willing to be the home for my son Phoebus Apollo and establish inside you a rich temple, for no one else will ever take you, as you will notice, nor will you be rich in cattle or sheep, I should think, nor will you bear corn or grow abundant co- crops. But if you hold a temple of far-shooting Apollo, all people indeed will bring hecatombs. Coming together here and the indescribable scent of fat will constantly rise and you will feed those who dwell in you out of a foreign hand since you are certainly not rich under your soil. Notice the argument that she's making here. Um, All people from all over the place will bring you hecatombs if you accept Apollo's birth here because he will build a temple here. Um, By hecatombs we mean like tons of cows. Hecatombs, a proper hecatomb is like a hundred cows. And you typically like really wealthy Greek uh, lords will sacrifice a hecatomb to the gods in celebration of a victory or in anticipation of a big like challenge or just to guarantee their own prosperity. This is an act of tremendous generosity to the gods um but again conveniently as we'll talk about next week you get to keep the meat so this is also in usually an uh episode of like great feasting and everybody in the village or the town or the city state tends to feast well when a lord makes a sacrifice of this magnitude um But notice that Leto's argument is, you are a shithole island, you have nothing else going for you, no crops will grow on you, no pastures will be set on you, you will never be rich in food or cows or livestock, but if you accept this temple, you will be rich anyway. Um, This is a hallmark of Apollo. Um, and the same thing will happen later on when he founds uh, his temple at Delphi or at Pytho. Um, it will be stressed that there is nothing going on for this place. That it is a shithole island or a shithole patch of land that where nothing grows and where nothing good is happening. But by building a temple on this shithole land, all of a sudden it will become abundantly wealthy. People will come from all over Greece to sacrifice at Delos, to sacrifice at Pytho, to entreat the will of the oracle at Delphi. Um, And as a result, they will bring their offerings, they will bring their cattle, and the place will become artificially rich. Um, This is basically a myth about economics, in a sense. A myth that acknowledges that there is more to wealth than just like material goods produced by a certain place. It is a recognition that civilization brings about wealth. And that's the first characteristic that you should always associate Apollo with. He is the god of civilization. He is the god of cities, of Big groups of people coming together and the weird epiphemeral goods that that produces. Wealth not through precious stones or precious metals or, you know, livestock or crops, but wealth because as a center of commerce and trade, wealth will be produced there. All goods will pass through their hands. Um, and this is what happens. Like, they make a big temple on Delos, and Delos becomes this place where everybody makes pilgrimages to, to entreat Apollo's good favor and will. And as a result, Delos becomes this really rich, really important cultural center for Greece. Hooray! Um, even though it's a shithole island with nothing else going for it. Um, this is characteristic of how Apollo interacts with the world and with the rest of the Greek society. But notice, too, that Apollo is not just the god of civilization, or rather, like, his being the god of civilization ties into lots of other aspects of who he is and how he works. Um, So when he's thinking about making a second temple, and he's wandering around looking for a likely candidate for, you know, temple number two, um, he's walking towards Pytho, and he encounters the stream or the spring of Telfusia. Um, and Telfusa, he says at the bottom of page two hundred forty, Telfusa, I am certainly thinking to set up here a remarkably beautiful temple, an oracle for mankind, who will always bring for me here perfect hecatombs, all those who will occupy the rich Peloponnesus as well as all those throughout Europe and the Secret Islands in order to receive an oracle. To them all I would prophesize infallible advice, issuing oracles in the rich temple. Now what One of the other things that Apollo is associated with is oracles, telling the future, prophesying. Um, And in fact, the temple that he will ultimately build through this process will be the single most famous oracle, the single most famous temple of prophecy in the entire ancient world. Um, The oracle at Delphi is where literally all Greeks are going to go for knowledge about the future. And we will... frequently run across heroes and gods and goddesses and just regular folks who go to the oracle at Delphi for advice about how to conduct their affairs, whether it's as small as like, when should I plant my crops this season, to as big as how do we get the winds to blow us all the way to Troy along with all of our armies, um, to even stuff like the gods inquiring about the oracle at Delphi. So this is going to be a big deal, and Apollo knows it's going to be a big deal. But Telfusa's response is negative. Phoebos, lord who works from afar, I will at least put a word in your mind, since you intend to set up here a remarkably beautiful temple to be an oracle for mankind, who will always bring for you here perfect hecatombs. Still I shall speak out, and you, keep it in your heart, the pounding of swift horses will always spoil it for you, and the mules, drinking from my sacred springs, there some people will prefer to admire the well-made chariots and the pounding of swift-footed horses than a large temple and all the possessions inside it. Now, Telfusa seems to be interested in protecting herself. Um, She is the star of this particular territory. She doesn't want Apollo's fancy temple coming in and messing up the place. So she flips it around. She says, well, there's all these people coming around here all the time, all these horses and stuff, and you don't want, you know, people to get distracted from your temple. Maybe you should find someplace else to go. Like, how about this shithole Pytho? Um... And she sends him off in that direction. But, as it happens, Pytho, as she knows, is inhabited by the Python. In fact, it's going to be named after the Python. Like, it's not called Pytho until after Apollo kills Python. Um, Python is one of Typhon's various monster children. A giant serpent with poisonous venom who is horrible and, like, terrifying and is ransacking the countryside. And the theory here is that Telfusa is trying to get Apollo killed. Like... Telfusa gives him deliberately bad information, so Apollo will get wrecked by Python... And then Telfuza won't have to worry about him anymore. But of course this backfires. Like Apollo kills Python, no trouble. Like it takes one whole sentence where, you know, on page 242, um, the Lord and Son of Zeus killed the serpent with his mighty bow. Like it's not even a complete sentence. Um, it's apparently no sweat for Apollo. And many stories have it that like he dips his arrows in the blood of Pytho and they become poisoned from then on, we'll come back to that. Um, but notice that in addition to Apollo being the god of civilization and the god of prophecy and the god of temples and religion in this sense, he's also pretty vengeful. He goes back to Telfusa and he wrecks Telfusa. He like covers her up with rocks and now she's just like this crappy little stream instead of a big impressive spring or river. Um, so Telfusa gets hers in the end. Damn that spring. Um Instead, Apollo takes Pytho, the place where he slew Python, and he decides to found his temple there. Um, But once again, we get like another weird diversion as far as Apollo's story is concerned, because he apparently jumps in the water and becomes a dolphin. And then he goes and finds sailors and he's like jumps on board of their ship as dolphin and is like, hey, I want you to become the priest at my new place, Delphi, because I am Apollo Dolphinios, Apollo the Dolphin God. Apollo has tons of names, like I've only covered like two or three of them here. Like, he's called Phoebus because light. He's called Delphi or Delphinios because dolphin. Um, like, he's all over the place. He has so many names and so many different, like, aspects and characteristics. Um, but eventually this works. Like, he, you know, gets all these people back to Delphi and they become the priests and the place becomes known as Delphi because Delphinios, um, rather than Pytho or any of the other names that the place is born before that, um... Now, this should give you a fairly weird understanding of who Apollo actually is. Like, on the one hand, yes, he's the civilization god. On the one hand, yes, he is the prophecy god. He's apparently also dolphin god, and god of, like, screwing up springs. And, like, they literally give him the name Telphusios at one point, because he, like, humiliated Telfusa the spring. Like, don't worry about most of these names, Um, but do know that the complexity of Apollo is kind of critical to who he is. Um, That whole being the god of civilization basically ropes in a whole bunch of sort of ancillary domains that he is in charge of. Um, So when we run into Apollo in this class he could basically be attributed to a whole bunch of these things at any given time. Um, So in addition to what we see here Like, in addition to civilization, prophecy, dolphins, um, as well as temples, we should associate Apollo with the sort of trappings around those things. So, Apollo is the god of civilization, but that also means that he is the god of art, Um, he is the god of culture. Um, We frequently see the muses hanging around with Apollo, um, either teaching him. Music, or he will be teaching them music. In some traditions, the muses actually are children of Apollo rather than um, rather than Zeus, as we've talked about in in Hesiod. Um, so again, be prepared to see Apollo sitting around playing lyres. Um, he is very much the musician god in his own right, um, although he gets his lyre from Hermes, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so. Music, art, civilization, these are all things tied together for the Greeks. But with the positives of civilization also come the negatives. Um, Apollo is also the god of plague. Um, we will frequently see if you piss off Apollo, he will strike you down with plague as his like weapon of choice. Um, So you pray to Poseidon to avoid earthquakes, you pray to Zeus to avoid storms and getting struck by lightning, you pray to Apollo if you don't want to get sick. Um, But on the flip side, Apollo is also the god of medicine, so doctors also attribute their skill to Apollo and see it as part of his art. Um, And I realize that, like, this is a lot and there's more to come, um, but sort of like half-focus your eyes, squint, and sort of look at the big central themes here, rather than the individual aspects. Um, What we're saying, what Apollo sort of symbolizes and represents for the Greeks, is basically culture writ large. Skill, in the sense not of like hard work Crafting, like we see with the Hephaestus doing, like, horseshoes and forging, you know, armor and weapons, but rather crafty skills, stuff that doesn't take a whole lot of, like, effort or labor, but does require a great deal of knowledge um, and ability. That's Apollo's domain, and that is something that can only exist in a civilized society, in a city. Um, like, you don't have, you know, nomadic peoples putting a lot of effort into literature, art, theater, music, medicine, etc. Um, these are priorities only when a whole bunch of people are gathered in one place for long periods of time. Um, so that is sort of attributed to it. Um, likewise, as much as God is, or Apollo is the god of prophecy, he is also, for that reason, tied to fate. Um, and in fact, as much as I like stress that the Moirai are hanging out in Hades most of the time, they're also deeply associated with Apollo. And in fact, we will see in Homer especially, Apollo kind of becomes the mouthpiece for fate. Um, he is a constant reminder of mortality to human beings um, and will constantly remind the gods of the limits that are placed upon their power. Um, Apollo is like a walking symbol in Homer in the epics uh, of the limitations of gods and men before the fates and the powers that sort of outrank even the gods. Um, he, that does not necessarily mean that like he's more powerful than Zeus, but it does mean that he sort of represents the limits of what Zeus can do, um, even if he doesn't actually like fight Zeus. Um, Apollo, kind of like Aphrodite, is a force of nature. Um, He is transcending the gods in a lot of ways. Um, He is almost more archetypal in the way that chaos was like the foundational god of the universe. Um, So keep that in mind as well. Um, But the third thing to keep in mind about Apollo is that he is also the god of light. And this kind of ties into both. Like, As the god of light, we see light in the sense of like knowledge and skill in the sense of civilization. Also light in the sense of illumination and revealing dark secrets in the way that prophecy does. Um, Apollo is the god of light. He is the god of knowledge. Um, He is the god of philosophy eventually, although like that'll take a little while once philosophy actually gets underway. Um, Philosophers definitely attribute a lot of their skill to Apollo. and different cultures like after the philosophical renaissance and like Plato and Aristotle and company will see philosophy as being a descendant of Apollo. Um, Wisdom is his purview. Um, Apollo is the god of wisdom in many ways, although that will get officially attributed to Athena for other reasons. Um, So keep in mind that's also a part of who Apollo is. Um, and with this god of light comes basically the jurisdiction over the sun. Um, Apollo is the god of the sun. Helios is technically the sun god. Like, he's the guy who gets on his flaming chariot and flies up to the sky, and that's how the sun works. Um, but Apollo, like, is his lord. Um, Helios is subservient to Apollo. Apollo calls the shots, and Helios fills them out. Um, so... God of civilization and everything that goes along with that. God of light, knowledge, prophecy, God of fate. Um, And the one thing that you will see, like you'll notice that he is, his epithet throughout this uh, Homeric hymn is that he is far shooter Apollo. Um, Apollo's weapon of choice is the bow. You will almost always see him carrying either a lyre for his musical talents and or a bow um, because he is an archer god he and Artemis kind of split this domain. They are both archers, um, but they're also very different in how their archery works. Um, Apollo and Artemis, if it isn't clear from this and other texts, are twins. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. They are kind of the mirror image of one another. Um, And if Apollo is all, you know, brash, light, and gold, and civilization, and loud, and musical, and so on... Artemis is, by contrast, quiet, um, reserved, more uh, interested in nature and the natural world. Her followers appreciate nature and the natural world. They go hunting. Like, they are very representative of nomadic cultures, if Apollo is representative of civilization and, like, placed urban cultures. Um, But this is sort of expressed in the difference between the ways that they are archers. Um, Apollo is usually depicted as having a golden bow. ...fitted with golden arrows. And these are the arrows that were dipped in Pytho's venom. So if you are struck by Apollo's arrows, you suffer. Like, you become sick, you experience tons of pain... um, ...and frequently, if Apollo wants to kill you, he's gonna, like... ...hit you so hard for so long before you, in fact, die. Um, Dying to Apollo means a long, drawn-out, unpleasant process ignominious, and unsympathetic. Um, Like Hades, Apollo does justice in that sense. He does not do mercy. He is positively merciless. Um, By contrast, Artemis is also usually understood as having a bow and being a skilled archer, but her bow is made of silver And her arrows are also silver. And unlike Apollo's arrows, when they strike home, they immediately take their victim into sweet, painless death. Um, It is instant, it is pleasant, or at least as pleasant as death can be, and it is merciful. Um, Not necessarily because Artemis is herself merciful, like she has her vindictive streaks as well. There's a famous story of Actaeon who went hunting and accidentally stumbled across Artemis in one of her secret groves, and Artemis turned him into a stag so his own hounds would tear him apart. Um, she does not mess around either. Both Apollo and Artemis can be cruel in their own ways, um, but unlike Apollo, Artemis is goddess of the hunt. Um, she is interested in skill in the sense of like skill in killing, skill in the more natural, primordial sense, um, where Apollo is skill on the level of like these uh, kind of sophisticated um, skills and practices and arts. Of, that only a civilized society can produce. Um, the other thing to keep in mind about Artemis is, like Apollo, she is goddess of the moon. Um, so Apollo is god of the sun, uh, Artemis is goddess of the moon. Again, technically it's Selene who is the moon itself, she's the one who rides the chariot up into the sky carrying the moon, um, but Artemis is associated with the moon and with night especially. Um, unlike Apollo, who you are most likely to run into at one of his temples, you know, doing his thing, Artemis typically hangs out in the wilderness and never comes into the cities. Um, you are most likely to run into her, and God forbid you do, um, in some, one of her sacred groves in one of the dense forests that she protects. As huntress god, this is not hunting in the sense of like contemporary hunting, where you're just like trying to kill as many animals as possible. Um, she preserves these places for the hunt. Um, she deliberately encourages like uh, um, populations of certain uh, hunting animals, so she can participate in the hunt. Um, natural order and balance is very much within her purview. Um, she is also the goddess of virgins. Um so if you were going to run across Artemis, you were probably going to run across a sacred grove and you were going to see her naked, surrounded by other virgin women also naked, usually bathing. And this will be the last thing you see before you die because that's how this works. Like Artemis does not brook people like busting in on her and her ladies being naked and having bathing sessions. Um, But this is how you will usually see Artemis. Like, this is how she's usually portrayed. Naked, bathing, in this sort of, like, primordial state. Um, And as the goddess of virgin, she is also the goddess of virginity. Um, Like, fathers will frequently pray to Artemis to protect their daughters from temptation. And likewise, unmarried daughters are going to pray to Artemis for preservation and protection. Um, because if you violate one of Artemis' sacred virgins, she will take her vengeance on you, um, which is like one of the few protections that these unmarried women actually have in this world, so this is a pretty good thing. Um, and you'll notice in the Homeric came to Aphrodite, this was emphasized. Artemis is one of the three goddesses, along with Hestia and, and Athena, immune to Aphrodite's temptations. Artemis has made a vow of chastity, of virginity, um, and she will retain that. She is perpetually virginal. Um, But again, to emphasize, since virginity is so prized in ancient Greek culture, um, a lot of people are going to respect and worship Artemis for this reason. Um, So while you probably do not know that many uh, girls named Artemisia, um, although it was a very popular name in ancient Greece, you will run across her Roman counterpart, Diana, very frequently. like people love to name their daughters Diana in the Roman world so as to like guarantee their their purity um, and to protect them from from harm. Um, but I also want to stress is that this is kind of the third archetype. Um, like we talked about the maternal archetype for women. In my last lecture, we talked about the um, sort of caretaker archetype for women in the way of Hestia and we talked about the the sexy archetype in Aphrodite like easy beautiful women. Um, That's kind of how the Greeks categorize their various women folk. But here we have another. Um, The character of archetype or the archetype of Artemis suggests that there is like this this extra place for women who devote themselves to purity, to worship, to be to having a religious function, um, who see themselves as involved with nature and who reject um, the world of like men and Apollo's civilization, who instead seek to worship Artemis um, in this very personal and very sort of deep meaningful way. Um, There are many women who will devote themselves to Artemis and will therefore be under her protection, and you do not mess with the sacred virgins of Artemis. Um, But we have to keep moving because we're already 50 minutes into this lecture and we still have so much to cover. Um, So in addition to Apollo and Artemis, we have to talk about the rest of the second generation of gods, including some of the stuff that we didn't read about too deeply, but we've probably seen them floating around the margins quite a bit um, in most of these myths. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is Hermes. Uh, he does get his own Homeric hymn. We did not read it here, which is kind of a shame, but it is a lot of reading as is. Um, in the Homeric hymn to Hermes, Hermes, like Apollo, is born. Um, and the first thing that Hermes does is he rustles a bunch of Apollo's sacred cows. Like, he steals them. Hermes establishes himself very early on as the god of thieves. Um which is kind of a weird thing to have gods of. <laughs> like, you wouldn't necessarily think that a clearly negative profession would have a god attributed it, to it. But that's that's Hermes' shtick. He is god of thieves. Um, he is also the messenger god, so you see him like carrying messages from Olympus to various places. Um, he is not the messenger of the gods, that's Iris. Like, anytime Zeus needs to communicate with someone real fast, it's typically Iris who carries the message. Um, Hermes is typically more about deliveries, Um, Iris carries information, Hermes carries packages. Um, So frequently Hermes will be dispatched to heroes carrying new weapons and armor or fancy doodads that will help them with their quests. Hermes is also responsible for bringing people who have died into Hades. So uh, Hermes will come to claim you when you die and bring you down to Hades where you'll then go through the whole like talking to Charon and getting ferried over the river leaf and then finding your new digs under Hades' rule. Um, So he is also associated with death in that respect. Um, He is also the god of like tricksters and like cleverness and ingenuity in a lot of ways um, like, I recognize that there's sort of a lot of overlap between Apollo's understanding of skill and Hermes's sort of, like, ingenuity. Um, but for the Greeks, this is a very different thing. Um, and this is probably best exemplified in the way that the Homeric hymn to Hermes ends. Like, after Hermes runs off with all of Apollo's cattle and, like, tricks everybody into thinking that, you know, they had just disappeared because, like, he walked them all backwards out of the pasture. Like, it's this whole thing. Um, eventually Apollo finally tracks Hermes down, and he's like, alright Hermes, give me, give up the cattle, I know you've got them, and Hermes is like, alright, here they are, and then Apollo's like, you're missing two, and Hermes is like, hey, have you seen this really cool instrument that I made? And then he produces, like, this turtle shell lyre that he made. The lyre is a harp, um, like, a cross between harp and guitar, kind of, um, like, different representations of it will have it working different ways but typically like you'll see it in ancient texts as like just a harp um but the way that Hermes describes it here it's got a back to it like a guitar or a lute would um but anyway Apollo is so enamored with the harp that he is willing to trade the lives of the missing cattle which P.S. Hermes totally sacrificed to the gods um in exchange for the harp but the relationship is what I want to focus on um Apollo is the god who perfects an existing art or talent or skill. Hermes is the one who comes up with the skill in the first place. Um, Hermes is the god of inventors, where Apollo is the god of like factories reproducing inventions. Um, It takes Hermes's ingenuity to enable Apollo's skill. Um, And we're going to see Hermes quite a bit. Like, he flits quite frequently throughout a lot of our myths and through the epic Uh, poems Um, he is typically neutral like he's typically got his own agenda going on and he will literally just flit in and flit out like we'll see him for like moments at a time before he zips off to whatever his next thing is to do Um, one of the things that is characteristic of of Hermes is you will see that he has like a winged helmet and winged sandals and he just flies everywhere like rapid fire all over the place he is always on the move Um, you cannot pin Hermes down He's also just really cool. Like, as much as he's the God of Thieves, he's definitely like the sort of admirable like thief with a heart of gold that you see in like contemporary art and stuff. Um he is absolutely like Ocean of Ocean's 11. Um it's hard to stay mad at Hermes because he's so smart and he's so clever and he's so like positive about everything um he typically will not get into whole messes with like sleeping with the wrong women at the wrong time um he's just out for kicks like he's just out having a good time um so he's a lot of fun to to sort of like watch when he shows up um and p.s as much as i will dig on the disney hercules movie for how they portray the gods at various points they nailed hermes like i love hermes as he is presented in hercules um like shades and all that's totally hermes um Now, moving on from Hermes, because as much fun as he is, we have to sort of talk about like the opposite counterpart. Um, We have Hephaestus. Hephaestus is one of the like legitimate, legitimately born gods to Zeus and Hera. Um, And this is a sign of like how bad their relationship is messed up. Um, Hephaestus was born crippled. Like one of his legs doesn't work. Different stories tell us different versions of how he got crippled, like some say that he was born crippled and that's just always been a source of strife between Hera and Zeus. Other stories have it that like Hephaestus is the peacemaker between Zeus and Hera, like after Hera catches Zeus in a compromising situation Hera will of course blow her top and start screaming at Zeus and then Hephaestus will get between the two and like try and make peace between his mother and father only he usually tends to favor his mother. Um, Hephaestus favors Hera, and as a result, Zeus will frequently get mad at him. And the story goes that apparently during one of these particular fights, Hephaestus took Hera's side, and Zeus picked him up and just chucked him off Olympus, and he broke his back when he hit a mountain in his fall. Um, At any rate, the important takeaway here is that Hephaestus is lame, he is ugly, And nobody likes him. That said, he is an incredibly skilled, like, metalsmith. Like, not as ingenious as Hermes in the sense of, like, coming up with brand new things off the top of his head, but Hephaestus is crafty in the sense that he crafts brilliant, like, tools and weapons and arms. He is the forge god, and the things that he forges are frequently very skilled indeed. Like the first thing he does after having his back broken and rendered a cripple, um, is he goes and forges two like basically robots, automatons, Um, one for one in gold and one in silver, which like carry him around from place to place and support him when he walks. Um, So, you know, already we're talking some pretty high-level skill here. Um, Hephaestus will also work with the Cyclopes to make the Thunderbolts for Zeus. Like, he is the weaponsmith of the gods in that sense. Um, But I want to sort of, like, tie all this together. Um, He is absolutely the Forge God. We should first and foremost associate him with metalworking, with creating weapons and armor. Um, But we should also see him as a peacemaker. Um, like as much as I love Hermes flitting around, being you know a bunch of trouble, I honestly think that if I had to pick a god to hang around with from the Greek pantheon, it would be Hephaestus. He seems like the most decent of all the gods. Um, he is a peacemaker. He actually legitimately cares about both his father and mother. He is, if anything, wronged in his relationships. Um, like he doesn't sleep around. He actually is married to Aphrodite. Um, Which supposedly is because Zeus is punishing Aphrodite for basically being the worst all the time. And it sucks. Um, Because while Hephaestus is married to the most beautiful woman on Mount Olympus and can obviously sleep with her at his discretion, um, she is constantly cheating on him behind his back with Ares. Um, who is like the typical Greek man, sexy and strong and powerful and you know combative and masculine and you know everything that Hephaestus is not. Um, Ares is as close to the pinnacle of masculine beauty as will appear on Mount Olympus, short of Ganymede, the Cupbearer, who is just a really hot dude, and Apollo himself, who is very much the paragon of Greek masculine beauty. Like he is probably as close as you can get to that perfect level, um, but Ares is just one step below. Um, so keep that in mind, Hephaestus, Forge God, Heart of Gold, Peacemaker, um, son of both Hera and Zeus. Um, but let's talk about Ares, because that one's also a little tricky. Um, so as cool as Hephaestus is, Ares is the absolute opposite. Ares is the fucking worst. Um, and he will frequently be represented as the worst in basically every myth where he appears. Um, Like Hestia and Hephaestus and a lot of the gods hanging around the periphery, you aren't going to see him mucking about in human affairs all that much, because he is usually too busy starting wars and getting caught up in them. Um, But Ares is interesting in terms of how the Greeks perceive warfare. Um... Like, this is not an honorable dude. This is not, you know, warfare as an epic struggle between heroes to achieve great ends and, like, have stories told about them for endless generations to come. Now, Ares is just a bloodthirsty asshole. Um, He is always interested in starting fights for no good reason. He doesn't have any loyalty to anyone. Like, he will totally start a fight and fight for one side and then switch halfway through the battle if he thinks he's going to lose or if he just doesn't want to, you know, be on that side anymore. He is the absolute worst. He is a traitor. He is just bloodthirsty and cruel and mean and rotten and none of the gods like him either. He is another of the legitimate children of Zeus and Hera Um, in most of his representations, but he is also just like the worst. Zeus repudiates him on a regular basis. Um, He's just a nightmare to spend time with and everybody hates his guts. Um, Largely because the sort of paragon of good warfare is found in Athena. Um, Now Athena... Athena is really hard to describe. Like, there's a lot going on with Athena, and she absolutely breaks a ton of the conventions that you would expect from the Greeks at this point. Um, as we read in the at the very end of the Theogony, um, Zeus, his first wife is Metis, rationality, reason, um, foresight in some ways, uh, and haven't been given a prophecy that one of his kids would ultimately, you know, unseat and betray him like Kronos, like he did to Kronos, Zeus is kind of war wary of what his kids are going to be up to at any given moment um so when metis conceives a child Zeus apparently like devours her or you know somehow just like takes her into him and from now on metis resides in zeus's head and gives him advice and like like gives him guidance with all of his decisions um, but in the process she gives birth to Athena Like, in Zeus's head, she gives birth to Athena. Um, And Athena apparently, like, starts her career by making herself a suit of armor. Like, she starts forging, like, a shield and a suit of armor and a helm for herself inside Zeus's head. Um, Which means that Zeus is getting such a splitting headache that, like, he actually has one of the other gods, Hephaestus, split his head open. So he, can, like, so he can let Athena out of his skull. Um, and Athena comes out fully armed and ready to go. Um, so first thing that we should associate Athena with is knowledge and wisdom. Um, she is the official goddess of wisdom. Like As much as Apollo has a lot of knowledge under the belt and it's sort of like skilled practical knowledge, Athena is the goddess of abstract knowledge, wisdom, strategy. Um, and strategy especially is her shtick. Um, She is also a goddess of war, but unlike Ares, who's just a dick and a bloodthirsty monster, Athena is a goddess of the tactics side of war, ingenuity in warfare, Um, skill in war. That is her domain. Uh, Ares's solution to war is just like overpowering people. Brute strength just muscling his way, killing as many people as possible for the sheer joy of and rage of bloodlust. Athena is war to a purpose. She will use diplomacy and she will use violence to achieve her ends, but the ends are what are first and foremost in her mind. Um, but she also kind of has a mischievous streak. Like, frequently if Ares has stirred up a war and he's participating in one side or the other, Athena will show up just to mess with him. Like, and take the other side and fight him um, for the sheer sport of it. Um, So Athena and Ares are like constantly at each other's throats. They hate each other. hate each other's guts. They are like diametrically opposed in all of their convictions and their beliefs. Um, So like she's hard to get a handle on. Um, on the one hand, she is, you know, wisdom and staid and very capable. On the other hand, she's interested in war and strategy, still, like, wise and capable, but also, like, with a violent mean streak. But the thing that I want to really stress here is she doesn't fit any of the normal archetypes, like, at all, um, Like, every one of the women that we've talked about can boil down to, like, a stereotype. You know, Aphrodite is the, you know, sexy airhead, and Gaia and Hera are just, like, vindictive, uh, possessive, jealous wives and mothers. Um, You've got Artemis as, you know, just, like, the protected, sacred, feminine virgin. And then you've got Athena. And who knows what to do with her? Like, she, like Artemis, has taken a vow of chastity, but it's not nearly as big a deal to her. She just doesn't care about sex and love. She's got better things to do, like war and making men look dumb. Um, If anything, I suspect that Athena represents the sort of capable woman. Like, a woman that is beyond what the Greeks fully understand or appreciate. The women that scare them, honestly. Um, so there is a sort of archetype being represented here—an archetype of female capability, of competence, which is surprising from the Greeks, who most frequently liked their women subservient and, you know, docile, or like see them as just buzzkills and monsters. Um, Athena is awesome. Like every time we see Athena, she is going to be awesome. It is very rare that Athena will be portrayed as anything but like super cool and super capable and really neat um like if there's any greek heroine or goddess to take away and make into a role model for women today this is going to be it um and i want to like stress this um it's not all misogyny as much misogyny as there is um like athena really is that cool and while it's not perfect, like, different portrayals will give her different levels of ability or capability or, you know, decency. Um, it's neat to see that the Greeks have a place for a woman who is also a human being, um, who also has her own priorities, her own interests, and is not just, you know, a stereotype. Um, but anyway, like keep an eye on Athena because she's really cool and will play an especially prominent role in the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, even, although we're not going to see that much of her leading up to that. Um, but let's see. That's Apollo and Artemis. That is Hermes. That is who else? Hephaestus, Ares. Now. Athena, there's one god left, the other Homeric hymn that we read for today, and that's Dionysus. And Dionysus is batshit crazy. Like, I don't even know how to to go into this one. I've been able to, like, sneakily segue from god to god. Yeah, there's no way I can get to Dionysus from any of the other gods. He is absolutely an outlier. Um... As the usual story of the Greek pantheon goes, like when you see the gods and goddesses of Greece listed, typically it comes down to 12 um, because Dionysus is left off the list and then either Demeter or like one of the other goddesses gets left off the list for some reason. Um, I don't exactly know how to explain it. At any rate, to me, there are 14 major gods and goddesses, even though everybody says that there are 12. So be sure to know all 14 of the gods and goddesses I've talked about in these two lectures. Um, but Dionysus, like, I don't even know. Um, we're going to get deeper into Dionysus later because we're going to read um, his sort of relationship to Thebes. We'll talk about, like, where he comes from, how he was born. Um, but I do want to sort of, like, dwell on some of the aspects that are brought about by this myth here. Um, so Dionysus is unwittingly transferred onto the ship and everything goes nuts like vines and booze grows on the ship bunch like Dionysus himself apparently turns into a giant bear or lion and starts like antagonizing and threatening the captain and the first mate like sailors go jumping off the ship and are immediately turned into dolphins and just like swim away it's weird Um, And it's not even entirely clear why this is happening. Like Dionysus doesn't seem especially mad about his situation. He's just like having a good time and apparently that involves driving everybody else nuts. Um, Let's start there. Dionysus is the god of insanity. Um, Like not insanity in the sense of like a clinical definition like mental illness, although that's part of it. Um, It's insanity as the Greeks saw it, insanity as sort of like uncontrolled emotion, Um, the inner urges of the self let free, Um, which is why, or rather, which is connected to the other sort of thing that you always associate Dionysus with, namely booze. Um, Dionysus is the wine god. At any time he shows up, you can expect like vines full of grapes to show up. Um, There will be partying, there will be revelry. Um, and the two are deeply connected to the Greeks, like you party until you go insane is kind of the way that this works. Um, the insanity brought on by drink or drugs is the insanity that Dionysus is associated with. Um, so things aren't going to make sense when Dionysus is around, for one thing. Um, but also the people who worship Dionysus um Again, this gets complicated real fast. Celebrations of Dionysus and celebrations like revering and worshiping Dionysus are fairly common, especially in old Greek society. Um, like, remember how I said that there's that whole discussion of, you know, Poseidon being the product of the Mycenaean Greeks and the native Greeks and then like the Aryans coming in and all of these, you know, different traditions getting sort of stuck on one god Dionysus seems to just have come out of nowhere like he's either one of the native Greeks traditions or one of the Mycenaean Greeks Um, he's definitely not anywhere in any of the other places that the Aryans hang out Um, like you do not see a surrogate for Dionysus in Hindu religion for example Um, but like to worship Dionysus is to basically party until everybody loses their mind Um, this is like actual greek practice the the greek theater is typically devoted to dionysus until it sort of gets relocated to apollo later on in the process during classical greece um and the idea here is that like the theater, the the stage play that you are watching sort of like works you up to a frenzy of emotion, either happiness in the case of a comedy and laughter or like weeping in the case of a tragedy. Um, and in either case, you are encouraged to just like, let it go, let it all out. Um, the Greeks were not a stoic people not for a long time like stoicism itself doesn't come about in greece until like the second century Um, the greeks are emotional they show what they are feeling they weep openly they rage openly they laugh openly like partying is sort of the greek lifestyle choice um and there is nothing shameful about it um but more than that like as much as drunken revelry is totally how you worship Dionysus, it is also acknowledged and known that it's supposed to get out of hand. Like, people die during these, these festivities, um, and that's okay. That's part of what Dionysus wants, for whatever reason. Um, the particular worshippers of Dionysus, the ones that we will see from time to time, and are especially important, are the maenads. Um, Maenads in Greek, the Bacchae in Rome, in Roman mythology in circles, um, because uh, Dionysus is Bacchus in Latin um, and in the Roman Empire. Um, and the Maenads or the Bacchae are as- these groups of women who are specific worshippers of Dionysus, and they are terrifying. Like, you will encounter them in Greek uh stories from time to time we'll see them in several of our myths as like either threats or just as something going on in the background um but typically the manads are depicted as being like these bunches of women who like lose their freaking minds and they take off into the woods and they proceed to just go freaking nuts for maybe weeks or even months on end like they live off the land, they're described as like taking wolves and other wild animals and like suckling them at their breasts, or tearing them apart and eating them raw, possibly both at the same time. Um, they are known to abduct children and people just all over the place and just carrying them off with them and again like tearing them apart and eating them um they will abduct young men from the vicinity and they will gang rape them and then tear them apart and eat them like i do not understand how this is supposed to work and neither did the greeks and that's the point um, the Greeks recognize that women were powerful when they were riled up and angry, um, and they're basically telling these myths to s- tell people to stay the fuck away from them when one of these things is going down, which is apparently happening frequently enough to like be a worthy c- point of concern. Um, the Greeks are terrified of the manads, and this is happening frequently enough that they don't—they just don't want to deal with it. Um, and f- sometimes the manads will like calm down, and they will like quietly return to their homes apparently without any idea of what they've been doing in the meantime. Other times they'll just keep on going for forever and everybody just like stays away from them and they don't want to mess with them. Um, Now it should be stressed that there is an undercurrent of lesbianism Under the Manads, as well as some of the other crazier things that happen with, like, women under the influence of Dionysus, Um, again, the Greeks don't really understand lesbianism. We'll talk about the Greek attitude on sex later, so we'll we'll get into that there. Suffice it to say that this is another case of the Greeks, like, clearly not understanding what women are, but at least they're admitting it this time. Um, They don't know why this phenomenon is happening, why women are, like, going nuts and tearing people to shreds. Um, They just know that it's a thing, and they know to stay the heck away from it when it's happening. Um, but this is also like, let me stress, cause you know, we would normally think of this as really weird behavior and something deserving law enforcement. Whatever is going on with the manads, they are also sacred to Dionysus, like very sacred to Dionysus. Like part of the reason why you don't go storming into the woods with a bunch of armed soldiers to break up the manads is because that would piss Dionysus off. And as we've seen, when you piss Dionysus off, weird shit happens. Um, so i don't have like a thesis on dionysus here um and i realize that like he's kind of everybody's favorite god and for good reason because he is just freaking batshit crazy and he is the booze god so you know as college students that probably looks pretty attractive um the idea that you just like booze yourself into a freaking mad stupor and just like let yourself go and you know whatever happens happens Dionysus is on board with it um but yeah it's weird and it's messed up and the Greeks do not know what the whole thing underlying Dionysus is they just know that he's crazy Um, and not necessarily just crazy in, like, the fun way, and where crazy is just, like, letting loose and being emotional and just, you know, not caring about the consequences of your actions. We're talking about, like, actual dangerous, like, sociopathy, psychopathy level insanity, um, and those people are sacred to Dionysus, um, So, like I realize that that's one of those sensitive subjects that I have no business weighing in on because I have no background in psychology, but as far as the anthropological dimension is concerned, the Greeks see this as a thing that is happening that they don't understand, and we should see it likewise when we are reading these myths. This is a phenomenon that overtakes people, um, like a powerful force that makes people act in strange and unpredictable ways, and that's Dionysus' influence. Um, arguably this is something that happens with all the gods. Like Dionysus will bring on these fits of emotion or like complete leave of senses, but Ares will also spur people into rage. Apollo will spur people into fits of inspiration or creativity. Um, Hermes inspires people to devise brilliant device like inventions. Um, This is all attributed to God possession in many ways. Um, It's not entirely clear how much is God and how much is human in many of these cases. Um, But the important thing to mention is that this is like a fact of life. Remember, the Greeks have a very powerful understanding of fate. They don't have a terribly powerful understanding of free will. Free will is malleable to the Greeks. Like, who you are at any given moment may very well depend on which god is messing with you at that moment. Um, If you ticked off Poseidon, it could be that you were in danger from earthquakes and, um, and natural phenomena like tidal waves. But if you ticked off Apollo... You could get sick and lose your mind, or become like possessed by Dionysus, who will just drive you out of your wits. Um, You, like who you are, is very dependent on your circumstances for the Greeks. Identity is very much bound up with, you know, what is going on in your life, how you are behaving and what the gods may be doing to you. Um, You are not safe, in short at any moment you could be possessed by a god or like lose control of your capacities or become something completely foreign to who you are. And the Greeks would just say you're under a god's influence and we shouldn't mess with it because that god could be ticked if we mess with it, Um, which would, you know, cause further instances of you losing control of your own self. Um, So that's another factor that we should be keeping in mind as we go here. Um, As much as like The myths are tied to religion, as in the case of the myth of Demeter and the whole Eleusinian mysteries and with like repeated rituals. We also have like people behaving strangely could very well be seen by the Greeks as divine influence and therefore sacred. Um, Divine possession could very well be a part of the ritual, um, a part of worship, a part of proper religious observance. And in the case of Dionysus, having a party where everybody loses their mind is the plan. It is encouraged. It is how everything is supposed to work. It is how you properly respect these gods and these practices. Um, Now, this is the Greek attitude. For the last week, the last two lectures, that was my serious focus. Hesiod's Theogony and the whole creation story, and then the Pantheon in the Homeric Hymns. Next week, we're going to start comparing and contrasting. Um, So the next reading is just a giant, like, shotgun blast of different creation myths from different cultures. Um, Genesis 1-2 in the Bible from the Israelite tradition, um, some of the Egyptian and Babylonian myths like the Enuma Elish, Um, Some of the other alternative Greek traditions like Plato's Timaeus or uh, the Phoenician history um, or even the Roman take in Ovid's Metamorphosis itself like adapted from the Greek tradition that we have through Hesiod. Um, So read those and at this point stop thinking about the Greeks except in terms of how they differ. Like, this is our opportunity to shed a spotlight on the Greek perspective through contrasting it with the other perspectives at stake. Look for the ways that the Greeks differ, how they differ in their starting point, how they differ in the, like, the dominant forces in the world, how they differ in their interpretation of these phenomena. Um, look for different priorities, like the Greek priority on fate and on not being able to control yourself um, as visible in these myths um are focused on civilization and like gods interfering but not themselves being ideal, think about that in contrast with the gods and goddesses, the myths and stories that we see in these other traditions. Um, it should help us see both the Greeks better as well as understanding how myth works in conveying these cultural assumptions.